get going. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. Lord, we're here to learn. We're here to sit at your feet. It's our desire, Lord God, that you would speak to us by your spirit. Lord, that you'd make your heart known to us, your will known to us. We really do love you. Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes to the scriptures. Help us to grasp what we need to grasp. We want to be your people. We want to love you. And we want your will to be done. Our prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, open our eyes, we pray. Jesus be glorified and we thank you. Amen. Amen. Here we are. Cessationism part two. So so much has happened since last month we were here that I kind of forgot where we were, except look at my notes. But to pick up the emotion of the whole thing of where we were last month and just to pick it up, uh, have to kind of connect with it yet again. We said a lot of things uh, last month. But I'm going to start with this question. How did this shift happen in history? How did it happen that the gospel that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived? And how did that get changed centuries later later, um, to the gospel has been, in my words, reduced down to justification by faith and that's the whole of the gospel how did we get away from the message that the kingdom of heaven has arrived to let's lead someone into a sinner's prayer so they can have life after death how did that happen how did we get this reductionist view and I'm going to try to explore that in our first session today so it's going to be a bit of a history lesson about some of the things that happened uh, in the church. How did the goal of being baptized in the dynamic, empowering Holy Spirit get sidelined where it is no longer the goal of salvation? The goal of salvation is now to go to heaven when you die. Whereas I read the New Testament, the goal of salvation is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and get a new life. How did that happen? How did that happen? How did this powerful Holy Spirit get demoted in our thinking to whose role now is only convicting people of sin to get them to say a sinner's prayer? Um, Other than believing that the Holy Spirit silently influences our conscience and works in the background to reform our character, there's not a whole lot of theology that gives recognition to the Holy Spirit in any tangible, manifest way just is is not there. In other words, I could say the Holy Spirit has been domesticated so as not to offend our Western sensibilities. And the role of the Holy Spirit now is more seen as part of the process by which we can lead people to having life after death instead of salvation leading to a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. To me, it's been a reversal. Um... I was at a funeral just a few days ago, and it was very, very predictable what was going to happen in this funeral. 
very little about the person who'd actually died. It was a car accident. It was a sad story. Very, very little about the person at all. And the whole thing was devoted over to a, a preaching about, are you ready to die? You know? And, and to me, it just didn't sit well with me. We should have been celebrating the person. And yet the whole thing was, are you ready for life after death? And it just, maybe it's where I come from, but the whole thing didn't sit well with me. It just didn't. But man, I just got to yes, get used to the culture. Anyway. But where is the dynamic power? That's my question. I, I, you know me well enough by now. I believe in the things of the Holy Spirit, and I believe they're absolutely necess- necessary for the church. And I'm asking, where is the dynamic power? Why have we domesticated? Why have we tamed the Holy Spirit down? Instead of being vibrant, life-changing, powerful moving us into the reality of knowing who God is, why has the Holy Spirit been tamed down to, so that he's now reduced to like leaven, a silent and an unfelt influence? It seems to me that the message of the gospel that Jesus preached, which is the kingdom of heaven has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it has been reduced down uh, to just a message of personal salvation that guarantees heaven when you die. Now, my question is this. Is that not going backwards from the ministry of Jesus back to the ministry of John the Baptist? Is that not a reversal? You know, and why have we done that? Why have we gone back to the ministry of John the Baptist and calling that gospel? Now, the ministry of John the Baptist obviously was repentance and faith and belief and introducing, but his message was that when the Messiah comes, he's the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist said he's going to do. That's the goal of the new covenant, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now that we are in that realm of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we now have a theology that puts us back and does away with the baptism and only emphasizes the things that John the Baptist emphasized. Is that not backwards? You know, and that's how I am perceiving things. So how did this happen? Okay, a little bit of history lesson. Now, I have to be very, very careful in what I'm saying because I know what I'm saying can be controversial. But we are 500 years on, and a lot of people are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So I'm going to go back and visit the Reformation a little bit this morning and... You are to hear some of my thoughts about the Reformation. The Protestants versus the Catholics. The Protestants had to deal with two main issues. And that is, number one, what do you do with the Pope? How do you handle the Pope? Where did he get his authority? And a lot of the issue that we're going to look at today is that the Catholics believed that the Pope had the authority to add to the scriptures. He could keep writing things that would have equal weight to the scriptures. And so you just keep, he keeps on writing more and more Bible. And he's infallible when he speaks from his papal throne. So how do we handle the Pope and where does he get his authority to do this? That's a question the Reformers 
really had to deal with. The second issue that they had to deal with is, what does it cost to go to heaven? What does it cost to go to heaven? And this is an issue that the Catholics brought to the table where their belief in purgatory. So those are the two issues that the, the reformers really had to deal with. Where does the Pope get the authority to keep adding to the scripture? And what does it cost to get into heaven? The reformers' strategy in tackling those two issues um, ended up, uh, they, they developed four statements. And you'll recognize these statements. Uh, sola Scripture, or Scripture alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. And Christ alone. And those were their rallying cries. Scripture alone. So the question is, what is and what is not Scripture? They're going to develop that argument. Second, grace alone, not by the selling of indulgences. The third one, faith alone. You cannot earn your salvation. It's a free gift, and even penance is not going to do it for you. It's grace alone. And fourthly, Christ alone. It's the merit of Jesus on our behalf and nothing else. Now, on those four statements, grace alone, scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, do I have any trouble with those statements? No, I don't. I don't have any trouble with those statements. I do have some trouble with how they define those statements, though. But yes, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, I don't have problems with those statements. Now, while it sounds admirable to say that they followed Scripture alone, here's my opinion coming out, I don't think they followed Scripture alone. I don't think they did. Today, while they say Scripture alone, I am more prone to say that they are tradition alone. They're far more become traditional than scriptural. And they're basing their theology on, on tradition rather than scripture. It sounds admirable to say they followed scripture alone, but it seems to me that the reformers de-emphasized anything except Paul's epistles. They had no use for the book of James. That was part of scripture they did not include in their theology. They thought that was the straw epistle. They did not use the book of Acts, and they hardly used the four gospels in their definition of, of Scripture alone. And the reason they didn't use the book of Acts and they didn't emphasize the teaching of the Gospels is because there was this issue of too many miracles in there. And they had problems with that. Their use of the book of Revelation only served to teach that the Pope would be the Antichrist. And while they said by Scripture alone, what they did do is they emphasized certain parts of Scriptures and other parts they downplayed. They did not bring a balanced approach to the whole of Scripture. What they did is they locked on to this thing called justification by faith and the epistles of Paul at the exclusion of the rest of Scripture. Is that too strong a statement? But I think that tended to be the issue. In other words, what they did is they picked and chose which portion of Scripture they used rather than include the whole of Scripture. 
what they did is they proved their arguments because their battle was with the Pope, is what it was, and they proved their arguments by proof texting and picking certain portions of scripture to support their thesis rather than taking the scripture on its own terms. In other words, they used the Bible to prove a point, not to see what it said. Of course, nobody ever does that today, do they? You come with your thesis already in mind, what you believe, and then you go to the Bible to prove it. And you kind of disregard all those scriptures that really don't agree with your thesis. Anybody ever do that? It seems to me that they did that because their, their goal was to deal with the issue of the Pope and his authority. To defend their position, sometimes they overreacted and sometimes they underreacted. And yes, they did make great strides to free themselves from the erroneous prevailing teachings of the day, but they did so in such a manner that they took many scriptures out of context, left them distorted, and that distortion has guided the Protestant church for centuries afterwards. An unfortunate result of that is cessationism, the belief that the things of the Spirit are not for today. And that is a, a, an unfortunate result because the goal of the New Covenant is to empower people in the dynamic Holy Spirit. The result of this twisting of Scripture is to do away with the very thing that the Bible says the new covenant is supposed to bring, the mighty presence of God and the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. And now you have a church, many churches, that preach justification, and it's all about life after death, and there's no life before you die. There's no empowering presence. There's no voice of God. There's no miracles. There's no healing. There's no presence of God. There's no hearing the voice of God. It's, it's all down to a code. It's all written down in a book, and that's the word. And now our goal is to preach our doctrine, and there's where's the living voice of God? Where's the living voice of God? You know, and it just seems to me such a backwards thing. Let's try to explain how this happened. In what we, you and I would call the medieval church, the Pope claimed that he was able to add to the scriptures. He could make these edicts from the throne and create this tradition which would have equal weight to the Bible. It's, it's equal weight. Now, the reason, now here, here, here we go, the reason the Catholic Church could claim that it could do that is because they had miracles on their side. The Catholic Church believed in the miraculous they had all kinds of healing relics. And what I have discovered, um, you know, even here in, in this country, that when it comes to the things of the Spirit, it's a whole lot easier to lead Catholics into this than it is Protestants. whole lot easier. Because the Protestants don't believe in it, Catholics do. The Catholics have mysticism on their side. The Catholics are very, very open to the things of the Holy Spirit, uh, very much so. They're very much quicker to believe in it. Protestants are very defensive against it, you know. And that's just very, to me, so very, very obvious. Healing is part of the Catholic tradition, you know. And whether we, they, they were right or not, and whether they were faking people out or not, they still had... They believe, here's a bone from such and such a saint, and if you touch it, you're going to get healed. 
you know, and they had this, this belief in the miraculous. And because they had miracles on their side, the, the presence of the miraculous is what gave the, the Pope authority to write scripture. Okay, that's the thinking, all right? So he could add to the scriptures and his words would carry the same weight as the written scriptures. And here is the presupposition that was there in the medieval times, in the Middle Ages. And that is the purpose of miracles. Now, this is where they're wrong. But the purpose of having miracles is to give you the authenticity, the ability to speak on behalf of God, and your words would be equal to Scripture. And to prove that I have that power to write Scripture, look at the miracles that we have. So let me repeat, their understanding was the purpose of miracles was to show that they had the authority to add to the scriptures and to write scriptures. That was the purpose of miracles. Totally wrong understanding of miracles, but that's what the Catholic Church believed. Now here is the difficulty. The reformers believed the same premise, that the purpose of miracles was to give the ability to write scripture. The reformers accepted the same kind of thinking. All right? Both the Catholics and Protestants totally failed. Both of them completely failed in understanding the purpose of miracles. It is not to give you the right to speak on behalf of God and speak words that are equal to scripture. The purpose of miracles is because the kingdom of heaven has come and God is compassionate. The purpose of miracles is to displace the powers of darkness in the lives of multitudes of people. It is not given to authenticate the right to create scripture. The difficulty the reformers had is they believed the same thing, but they had no miracles. The Catholics did. The Protestants did not. That was the problem. And so their thinking went along these lines. That as long as miracles exist today, they have the right to keep on writing scripture. But we have to go to scripture alone as we have it. And to do away with their right to write scriptures and speak scriptures, we have to do away with miracles. You follow the reasoning? They had to do away with miracles to take away the authority from the Pope to write scripture. That's how the battle lines were drawn. They made a lot of use out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, which I'll read. And this is a verse that the, the reformers used a lot to prove their point. But it's going to be a classic case of them reading into the scripture what is not there to prove a point. They're trying to prove that this verse does not prove whatsoever. But 2 Corinthians 12, 12 um, is a, uh, a scripture that the reformers used, but they took it out of context. I'll just read it to you. It says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. That's the scripture the reformers used. Now, they took out of that verse this meaning. 
if you are an apostle, then you must have miracles to authenticate that you're an apostle. And they read into this that the role of an apostle, what makes you an apostle, is that you are a writer of the New Testament. God used you to pen the New Testament. That's, that's their definition of apostle. And the signs of an apostle are miracles, signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And therefore, they reason from that scripture that as long as you have miracles happening, you have the right to be an apostle, which means you have the right to create scripture. That's what they read out of that verse. However, that's totally out of context. That is a wrong definition of what an apostle is. There are plenty of apostles that never wrote any scriptures, you know, and it does not say here that the signs of an apostle are miracles. There are plenty of people in the New Testament that God used to do miracles that were not apostles. Just because you, God uses you in the miraculous does not mean you're an apostle. Now, the definition of an apostle is not someone who writes scripture. But they brought those premises in. The signs of an apostle here are, are not the miraculous. But what Paul is talking about, if you would just read the whole chapter and put this in context and read it in chapter 11 and chapter 12, the context of this scripture is that the signs of an apostle is that you suffer. The signs of an apostle is a blameless life. The sign of an apostle is you have incredible patience through the whole of it. The, the sign of being an apostle is the effectiveness of your preaching. The sign of an apostle is you don't take the support off other people and you're self-supporting. All these kinds of things. And that's the context of this. And then when he says with, with signs and wonders and mighty deeds, that's on the side. That's not what defines a person as being an apostle. It's the other things that define you as being an apostle. But the, the reformers misinterpreted, took that verse completely out of context and created a, a, a proof text out of that. And that verse simply does not what say at all what the reformer says it says. But they were just completely wrong on it. They have this erroneous starting point. They went in search of scriptures to back this claim. And this is one of the scriptures they used as a proof text to support their premise rather than let it see it interpret it in, in the proper context of scripture all right it almost seems today that there are people that i will call them a bible deist now when i use the word deist or a deism what do i mean because that's a theological word if you are a deist and a lot of the founding fathers of the united states of america were actually deists if you are a deist, this is what you believe. You believe that God created the universe and then stepped back and withdrew from it, and there's no more direct and active involvement with it. Some of these would look, define it this way, as if God in creation wound up a clock and now has just stepped back and let it wind, letting it wind down. Now, there is no active participation in the creation that he gave. In a real sense, there are many Christians today that act the same way because they believe that God has withdrawn his direct speaking and acting as soon as the Bible was completed. 
As soon as now we've got the New Testament, there's no more direct involvement of God with us. That we've all been given a commission and we all need to be faithful to that commission and so on and so on and so on. But God actively involved? No, they keep that at a distance. In Western history, for us in the West, the what we call the Enlightenment, I think was not so much of an enlightenment. But what we call the enlightenment has so pervaded our culture that we have become anti-supernatural people. We have become anti-supernatural people, so much so that most people in the Western world, including Christians, tend to be suspicious of anything that is supernatural, no matter what the Bible says about it. We are just cautious of anything that we can't prove. It's the truth. Those who deny the gifts of the Spirit are for today have to explain the charismatic phenomena that does happen in some way. It usually is labeled one of two things. Number one, it's demonic. Tongues are of the devil. Which always blows my mind when people say that. So you don't allow God, the Holy Spirit, to have manifestations, but you allow the devil to have manifestations when you're saying things like that. You allow powers of demons and occult to be supernatural, but you don't allow the Holy Spirit to be supernatural. That doesn't make any sense. Or the other explanation is there's some sort of psychological thing going on in people's minds. And that's the attitude towards the things of the Spirit by many Christians today many Christians. It is wrongfully assumed that miracles, now even with charismatic Pentecostal people, we've got some issues here. Because I've discovered people who are Pentecostal or charismatic are not necessarily good in scripture. Not necessarily good in scripture. The, they, the tendency of people to follow fads is incredible. I mean, the flavor of the month is such and such a doctrine. Next month, let's see what we're believing. And the year after that, I wonder where we're going, what fad we're going to follow. And, and, and charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled people, full gospel, whatever label we want to put on it, are not necessarily good students of theology, not necessarily good students of the word. Uh, they don't really pay attention to the jots and the tittles, and we are moved by the next exciting thing that happens rather than stability in understanding. Uh, and so even in, in, in Pentecostal churches, it is often wrongfully assumed that if a person comes with the miracle ministry, that that authenticates what they believe. I'm sorry. I have seen people, they're on TV all the time, claiming miracles, and they're preaching rubbish absolute rubbish sometimes they're, they're so off the wall on, 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 on theological issues and, and, but they got a miracle doesn't the miracle authenticate their message no it does not the miracle authenticates that God is compassionate and he uses even donkeys it's an authentication of God's grace and God's compassion and God's mercy. It is not an authentication of the preacher, his lifestyle, or his doctrine. 
Why do we believe it authenticates the man? Man, if, God, if I had to be perfect before God could use me, he'd never use me. How about you? I mean, it's not an authentication of you, your character, or your doctrine. It's an authentication of maybe you're hungry for God. It's an authentication of God's mercy and God's grace. Miracles do not authenticate the person, nor do they authenticate his message. That's so important for us to understand. Because if such and such a person said it, it's got to be true. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. Both Catholics and Reformers are wrong on this point. Miracles do not authenticate the man. They do not. They do not authenticate the apostles, but the, the miracles authenticate the one the apostles speak about, about Jesus. In the New Testament, there are plenty of apostles who never wrote scripture. Plenty of them. If the purpose of miracles was to authenticate you as an apostle so you could write scripture, then why didn't all these apostles write scripture? Plenty of them that are not, never wrote scripture. And besides that, did you know there are plenty of New Testament books in your Bible that were not even written by apostles? Was Mark one of the twelve? Was he an apostle? You know, you've got, uh, you've got other people. You've got Luke, you've got Mark, you've got Jude, you've got all kinds of people you know, that were not part of those original 12 apostles that God used to write scripture. And I never read in my Bible of Mark ever performing a miracle, and yet he wrote scripture. I don't read of Luke performing a miracle, though he might have, but I don't read about it, and yet he wrote scripture. So this idea that you have to have miracles to authenticate your right to write scripture so you can be an apostle, just the whole premise is wrong. But that was a lot of the battleground. Do you think the words of John the Baptist are important? Did he speak as a prophet? Of course he did. Did John the Baptist ever do a miracle? No matter of fact, Jesus pointed that out in John 10:41. John the Baptist did no miracle. And yet God used him. You know. Um, was everybody in the New Testament saved because of miracles? A lot were, but not everybody. I like the story of Lydia in Acts 16. It says, and the Lord just opened her heart. And there was no sign and wonder and miracle to do that either. The Lord just opened her heart. So let me repeat. This is where both Catholics and Protestants were wrong. Miracles never testify to the worthiness of the person through whom they are expressed. Never. That person through whom a miracle could happen could be living in adultery and still a miracle would take place. Because giftings are giftings, they're not earned. And so miracles never testify to the worthiness of the person through whom they are expressed. What miracles do testify to is the character of Jesus. And they do testify about his relationship to the Father. Miracles authenticate the gospel of Jesus. They don't authenticate the messenger. Important principle for us to understand. There are plenty of scriptures to do that. 
In another sense, I said we're like Bible deists. In another sense, a large portion of the evangelical church are the modern-day Sadducees. Now, what's a Sadducee? Well, as the old joke goes, they don't believe in spirit, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in life after death, so they were sad, you see. That's the old joke. You know, but, but in the days of Jesus, there was this, this religious group. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Herodians, there were Zealots and the, the Essenes. The Sadducees were a sect that did not believe in life after death. They believed that when you're dead, you're dead. They did not believe in the presence of angels, and neither did they believe in the resurrection of the body to come. They did not. To them, the word of the Lord was reduced to a code. A written down code, the summation of statements that God had made in the past, put down in a, in, a, in a written code, it became the law, that became the word, there was no spirit, and this code, this written down on piece of paper, this code, this legal document, was the only source of authority. That's it. And there are many that hold that same position today. Instead of speaking, of witnessing of a, of a speaking Holy Spirit, all that God has got to say and do has been reduced down to a written code, which unfortunately is often legalistically enforced upon others with judgment. And that is often the case. Church history. If we're going to look at church history and argue from church history, that, well, where have been all, the, all these gifts over the years and hundreds of years and so on? I'm going to make a statement. If you want to do your research, you can find it. There's plenty of evidence out there. Um, I can give you names of books if you want to read through the church history about all this kind of stuff. Church history, listen carefully, does not, and that word not is spelled N-O-T. Church history does not support the notion that the Holy Spirit's gifts have been erased from history. They have been there, plenty of them, every century, all times in all places of the world. There is much documented evidence through the centuries of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. Excuse me, I'm going to argue the other way. It is cessationism that is not well documented. They're the ones who believe this, who have to prove that they never happened. It has happened. Cessation is what is not well documented. The presence of the gifts of the Spirit is well documented throughout church history. But where it is uh, cessationism has sort of won the day with people, the, the places that, that, that taught this kind of stuff were, are cultures that were dominated by an anti-supernaturalistic mindset. The fact is, even today, in this world, there are hundreds of millions, that's a big number, hundreds of millions of believers, believers today that believe in and testify to the active gifts of the Holy Spirit at work today. Hundreds of millions of people. Yes, some of it is bogus. Yes, some of it is stupidity. Yes, some of it is inauthentic. But are you going to tell me 100 million people are all wrong? testifying to this, that they're all deluded. The fact is that the Pentecostal church is the largest, fastest growing movement of church around the world today. Absolutely it is. 
no question about it, especially in Eastern countries and, um, and uh, the poor countries of the world, it is by far the predominant. Are they all wrong? Are they all really deceived? Is, is there really nothing happening in the Spirit of God in these places? You know, are we ready to say that from our Western comfort zones? Are we really, to, are we really to, going to tell them that they're all dreaming this stuff up? You know, today I'm going to give you five various attitudes that we can have towards this topic. Five attitudes towards the gifts of the Spirit, towards the dynamic reality of the Holy Spirit. Attitude number one. This is my longest of the five, is this. We are cautious to embrace them because we have seen too much excess and exaggerations. We don't want to deny that it is there, but we keep a heart distance from it. We're cautious because we've seen too much problems, excess and exaggerations and there is no doubt that there have been plenty of abuses that have plagued the church and there have been plenty of abuses that have discredited the works of the Holy Spirit my response to that is going to be what I believe Paul the Apostle's response was to that when he wrote 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians there was abuse of what, what does it mean to be spiritual? I speak with the tongues of angels. That makes me a spiritual person as I live in carnality. I mean, there was so much abuse in the Corinthian church. And a lot of that abuse was over there. What's the purpose of speaking in tongues and prophesying and, and, and he that works miracles and the gifts of the spirit. And, and yet their lifestyle was horrifically carnal. What was Paul's answer to that? He says, oh, we better just shut this whole thing down because this just leads to abuse. No, that's not what Paul's attitude was. In his opening chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 3 or 4 down to about verse 7, I believe it is, Paul starts his epistle with this, with these words, I thank my God that you are enriched in all utterance and in all knowledge and that you come behind in no gift. I thank God for it. And he gives praise to God for the very things that the Corinthian church was abusing. And he gives thanks to God for it. Paul's answer to abuse and misuse is not non-use, it's leadership. It's correction. It's calling people on the carpet and getting them to straighten out. You don't do away with the things of the Spirit because people are acting in a stupid manner. You correct the people. And you correct the abuse. And you get the, the framework of reference proper. What is the purpose? You, you do teaching on it and get it right. And the fact is this, that there, in spite of the abuses that are out there, the fact is this, that there are plenty of ministries that have integrity today. Plenty of ministries that practice absolute integrity when it comes to reporting miracles uh, with authentication and testimony 
There are plenty of them. They just don't get the press. It's the abuse that gets the press. But there are plenty of good people out there. Absolutely. And I could say this. It's just not the Pentecostal or charismatic churches that get abusive. There are plenty of non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic churches that are just as much quagmire morally and scandals as well. It's not just spirit-filled people. It's out there everywhere in the world. But first, first attitude is cautiousness because of excesses. The answer to that is just teach. Leadership, get it right. The second one, uh, attitude that people have, we approve in principle, but we're going to keep our distance. In other words, I'm not going to really speak against it, uh, but I'm really not going to get involved either. There's a group, there's lots of people who approve in principle, but never actually get involved. They just keep it at a distance. A third attitude that people have is we approve of these things, but we really feel that other issues are more important. Other issues are more important. There's some people that take that attitude as well. A fourth one, and this is where you're going to find me more than anywhere else, is spiritual gifts are critical and they must be embraced for the church to do what it's supposed to do. You cannot do the work of God without the things of the Spirit. And that's where I would come in. They are critical to the health and life and the mission of the church. That the church is built up by the presence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and evangelism, outreach to this world, requires the power of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The fifth, which I do not agree with at all, is that that spiritual gifts are necessary evidence of salvation. This would be a typical um, stand of what's called the UPC, United Pentecostal Church. And some churches, not every church, but some churches that refer to themselves as apostolic today would tend to believe that way. You're not saved unless you speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. You know, that's, that's an extreme view, but that's out there. Those are, are five attitudes that are out there. Uh, I'm, I'm a combination of, of number four, that's, that's me more than any of them, and I would be number one, I'm not cautious, but I'm going to respond to the problems with teaching. I'm going to respond to it. We're not doing away with this. We're going to bring correction and maturity. All right? That's why we're doing these sessions. You know, that's why I go around teaching as I teach because we need people on board with this. Are there other issues that the church needs to face besides this? Yes, of course there is. But that does not mean we don't face this one. It has to be dealt with. Because I have a passion, I have a burden. We are to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit in everything. I am convinced that I am convinced that I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is the key ingredient to the entirety of the Christian life. If I want to glorify Jesus, I need to be filled with the Spirit. If I want to serve Jesus, I need to be filled with the Spirit. If I want to understand the Word, I need to be filled with the Spirit. If I want to preach well, I need to be filled with the Spirit. If I'm going to testify, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. If I want to change character, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to make the church what it needs to be so it can serve Jesus. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I do not endorse the idea, there's a mild bit of repetition here, that just because you operate a spiritual gift, that means you're spiritual. It does not. I often point out, and I say it a bit of a joke, but even Balaam's donkey spoke in tongues. He was still a donkey. You know, it didn't change what he was. You know, um, there are plenty of examples of people in Scripture that operated spiritual gifts that were far from spiritual people. You know, um, just look at the Corinthian church. You know, the number of problems that that church had. I once read through the first Corinthians. I said, I'm going to take a note of every time there's a new problem in this church. I counted on first reading 24 problems that this church had. Major problems. Everything from fornication to adultery to pride to ego. Uh, 24 different issues I picked out of that just in one reading of first Corinthians. And yet they thought they were spiritual because they spoke with tongues of angels. Here they were speaking in tongues, but their personal life was horrible. Disunity, taking each other to court, but I'm spiritual because I speak in tongues. Were they ever deceived people? Now, Paul didn't do away with speaking in tongues. He said, let's just get this right. But speaking in tongues does not make you spiritual. What makes you spiritual is when you live in the light of the resurrection to come. Now you're talking. Realizing you're going to be resurrected and you're going to stand in the judgment. Now you're talking. The spiritual means you live with a big picture in mind of what God is doing in Christ Jesus. And gifts of the Spirit are, are to assist you in your walk, but just your possession of a gift of the Spirit does not make you a spiritual person. There's plenty of examples of that. King Saul in the Old Testament could prophesy, and he did, and he was a strange dude when he did it. I mean, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I mean, he's got murder in his heart. He's out to kill David. He's, down, he's there to hunt him down. He's sending his soldiers out to kill David. They fail. And so Saul says, I'm going to do this in myself. And he goes to where David is and close to Samuel. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. And murder's in his heart. So is he a spiritual person because he prophesied? Of course not. How about people like Samson? Did the Spirit of the Lord come upon him? Was that a fake anointing? Was that demonic? Or was that really God? The power that came on him. Where did his power come from? Was it really God? And who was God anointing? An adulterer? You know, his lifestyle didn't make him any spiritual, but the power was there. You know, Gideon, you know, I, my favorite character of Gideon that I butchered one year in teaching. You know, I said he was not a nice guy. Gideon was a terrible guy. Horrible. He, he tipped the balance between the bad and the good in the book of Judges. And yet God used him in powerful ways. Is it possible that we can cast out demons? Lord, haven't we cast out demons in your name? And him still to say, I don't know you. Is that not possible? Is it possible that you and I can sing charismatic praise songs without giving any attention to God in the process? Is that possible? Can we be caught up in the rhythm and the melody instead of a revelation of God in these songs? Sometimes we can even sense the presence of God, but after the worship is over, you can go out and talk football, and folks, I just don't get that. You can't be in the presence of God and just dismiss it as if you just watched a TV show and your just mind has changed that quick. 
I don't get that. If you're in the presence of God, folks, it lingers with you. It lingers with you. I, if you can just switch it off, I don't know what you were just at. I, I, I'm confessing my personal struggles with some things that I see. You know, I know that I'm in the presence of God, and I know if God is speaking to me deep in here and something touched me, sometimes it takes me hours to feel a release from it. It's just so inside of me. You know, and just, well, let's go and change the topic so quickly. I, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I just, <laughs> hey, if you encounter God, it sticks with you. It sticks with you, you know. My conviction is that spiritual gifts belong to the whole body of Christ. Everybody is the flow and gifts of the Spirit. Absolutely everybody. My conviction is that if you never heard of cessationism in your life, and you were on an island and never heard the Bible before, and you had a copy of the Bible in your hands, and you read it for yourself, you would never in a thousand years come up with a doctrine of cessationism. It's simply not there. It just is not there. You have to be taught it before you read your Bible, and then you read it into your Bible. You have to be taught it. You have to grow up in that environment and, and hear it so often you think it's the truth, and then when you go to the Bible, you start reading it into the Bible because you never get it out of the Bible on its own terms. You just would not do it. Some opponents to the things of the Spirit today would argue this that there are only three basic periods of church history where there were real miracles. And they would say that was in the time of Moses, that was in the time of Elijah, and that was in the time of Jesus and the apostles. And all the miracles of the world happened within those three periods of time. And I asked the question, have these people ever read their Bibles? They make those claims are you telling me there are no miracles in the book of Genesis? Is there no miracles? Was not Abraham a prophet in the book of Genesis? Did not God open and close wombs of women? In, was there not a flood? Where are, where are, do you not read your Bibles? Were there no miracles in the book of Joshua? Were there no miracles in Judges? Were there no supernatural powers through David? All these prophets in between, was God not with them? And so when they say these clusters of only three periods of history, there were miracles because there was Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, Jesus, the fulfillment. The miracles were clustered around those three people. I just go... Do you read that kind of statement and believe it's true? Or do we read the Bible and see there are miracles all the way through the Bible? They don't cluster around three. Now, there is no doubt that there were periods of history where there were multiplied miracles. Yes, that is true. But I'm going to ask you a question. Is the lack of the miraculous because God has withdrawn the gifts of the Spirit or because we're just backslidden. Because we don't have faith. Because there's not expectancy in us. I like what 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1 says. 
is when the nation was in a very dark place. When Eli was the high priest and Eli was a judge and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were despicable people. And it says in 1 Samuel 3, 1, it says, and the word of the Lord, King James Bible says, was precious in those days. What that means in modern English is precious little. It means it was hardly ever around. There was no voice of the prophet. There was no word of the Lord. And what was the result? A completely backslidden, dry state of the nation of Israel. It was just dark. There was nothing really happening there. And that's because there was no great faith. That's because there was no witness. That's because there was no prophet. And so God raises up a prophet, Samuel, to bring the people back into the reality of the presence of God. Cessationism wants to argue from experience. They say to me, you're not supposed to create doctrine out of your experience. And I would say, there's nobody you can tell that to more than me. Absolutely. We create doctrine out of the scriptures, not out of my experience. I do not interpret the Bible by my experience. I interpret my experience by the Bible. Absolutely. But then I will say, but cessationist, you create doctrine out of experience. Or I could put it this way, you create doctrine out of a lack of experience. Because you don't see it. You create a doctrine out of it. I mean, I could get interesting here. Do you know there are people in this world that have never seen a train? They never see a train. Does that mean trains don't exist because they've never seen one? Even to this day, there are people that believe that man never walked on the moon. Does that mean it didn't happen because they can't fathom it? Never seen a man walk on the moon? Does that mean it didn't happen? Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not real. Just because you've witnessed no miracles doesn't mean they don't happen. Just because we grew up in a culture that's anti-supernatural doesn't mean the world isn't full of miracles. You know, it's the height of Western arrogance to write the whole thing off when the Bible testifies of it so much. What God wants to do is when the church is dry, when there's a lack of faith, when there's cold religious formality instead of a vibrant presence of the Holy Spirit, God always sends somebody with a prophetic voice. He always does. And he's, God is always calling his people back to his covenant, back to his purposes, and often will release miracles and often renewal of worship uh, just to bring people back to God. Let me just go for a few minutes more and we'll just take a break here. The fact is this, that God is sovereign over revival. I do believe that. But that does not mean I'm not to seek for it, I'm not to pray for it, I'm not to prepare my heart for it. I'm to cry out, Lord, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am to seek the face of God. Both you and I must be prepared to do whatever God asks us to do to bring revival. We must seek him. We must do whatever he requires us to do to answer their prayer, even if that means a stripping away of life as we know it. The Bible says if we seek him with all our face, he will be found by us. 
My conviction is that the Bible certainly presents the empowerment of the church at Pentecost as normal. Normal for all believers. I believe that the Gospels represent the ministry of Jesus as a model that we're to follow. Whenever he sent his disciples out, it was to follow the same pattern that he did. My understanding is when I read Paul about his gifts of the Holy Spirit, you cannot separate the gifts of the Holy Spirit from his understanding of the body of Christ. If you do away with the gifts of the Spirit, you do away with the multi-membered body of the Christ, and all ministry is left to the professional clergy. If you do away with the gifts of the Spirit, you do away with the ministry of the body of Christ. You can't separate these at all. One more thought here. You've heard me say this before, but just forgive me for the repetition, but if you've heard me over the years, you know I carry on with these things. We're in the last days. What are the last days? The last days are not the final few days before Jesus comes back. The last days began at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And they have been in continuance for now nearly 2,000 years. And what will happen is there will be a last day. And that's when Jesus appears and comes back. The last days begin at the birth, life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus with the achieved goal of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, like John the Baptist said. He said when he comes, he's the one that's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And all of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is to get to that point where the new covenant can be enforced, given freely, by the bestowal of the Holy Spirit in dynamic power, the last days have begun. That's what Peter says, in the last days it will come to pass, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And it's been going, accumulating, escalating, moving towards a direction, moving to the last day. And that's the day that Jesus will appear. All that is the last days. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost makes it plain that this gift is for all who believe on the name of Jesus. Salvation and the gift of the Spirit remain in the same era. I can't be saved without being filled leading to the filling of the Holy Spirit. While the book of Acts does not, is not a theological book, it's an inspirational book, which means I don't go to the book of Acts as my primary source to create doctrine. But it is evident from the testimony in the book of Acts that the church is supernatural. It's all the way through the epistles as well, but the evidence in the book of Acts that there is a supernatural element to the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel, and the gospel can be seen, and the gospel can be heard. If that's how the church began, why do I think I can get along with any less than that today? If they needed the power, what makes me think I don't? I do need the power. I don't know about you. You may know. I need it. I need the power. And as I read in the, the story in the book of Acts, when the church went through hard times, when they were being persecuted, how did they pray? I like their prayer in Acts 4, verses 29 to 31. Behold their threatenings. Now, because they are threatening us, Lord, this is our prayer. Would you stretch forth your hand and give mighty signs 
and wonders. In other words, when they were being fought against, when war was declared upon them, when they were threatened, when they were persecuted, their prayer was, Lord, increase that sense of power in the church. Because that's what it's going to take for us to handle the war that the world throws at us. Their response was, Lord, more. Stretch out your hand. Heal the sick. Let's see devils cast out. Let's see the power of God transform lives. If we are lacking in this today, it is not because God has withdrawn the gifts of the Spirit. It's because we're just people who don't have faith. It's because we're people who are not hungry. It's because we're people who don't carry around a sense of expectancy. Or we have asked for the wrong motives. We, we've sought it for our own pleasure, which is wrong. God won't honor that. Or we, we, we've sought it for our own self-promotion, which is wrong. We need to seek these things that the church could do the work that has been commissioned to do. There is a lost world out there that is going to perish because there's no evidence of the power of God. That's why we seek these things. And with that, I better take a break. Or else I'll just keep talking. And you'll never get your cup of tea. <laughs>